don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a culture that you could say it loves self-help. It's almost like addicted to self-help, right? Self-help books, they riddle the walls of bookstores. You go into the local bookstore and there's the self-help section with all the smiling faces, right? So these books, they're, they're by gurus. Usually it's like a celebrity or someone you've seen on TV and they usually proclaim how to overcome fears in 30 days or 20 steps for finding your peace. Don't those sound appealing? Right? You know, read this book, you know, give the 20 bucks, read it, voila, you're healthy, you're wealthy, you have peace, right? Who's, who's ready to sign up? Anybody? So I, I did a quick search on some uh, self-help advice. Let's just say nothing was worth sharing uh, for this morning now, we could take some time to analyze, right, self-help principles that come out in the local book, the, the, quick, the books that have come out recently. We could place them under the scrutiny of Scripture, the light of Scripture. That would be kind of fun, right? That we might learn something. But what will be more fun this morning is hearing from God, getting help from God's Word. We don't want self-help. We want His help. This morning, God has for us in Philippians chapter 4, 1 through 9, what we might call his help principles. Principles from God to help us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So please open your Bibles with me to Philippians 4, 1 through 9. At the end of Philippians 3, God encouraged us to persevere. So we learned we must imitate Paul, we must imitate other Christians. We need to imitate them in forgetting what lies behind, that's earthly things, and press on toward the upward call in Christ. God also warned us against watching those and seeing those who are abandoning Christ for the things of this world, their earthly passions, their cravings. Now in Philippians 4, 1 through 9, he's going to give us some principles to help us persevere, to help us run the race to the end. He's going to help us become mature, persevering Christians. Let's read Philippians 4, 1 through 9 together now. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, My joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, God, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. So this passage is is full of what we might call his help principles, right? These are Christ-centered, God-given principles. These, These are principles to help us endure in Christ to the end. This is what we want as Christians in a Christian life, that this passage provides for us. It's the way to endure in Christ. And this will be our main idea this morning. God helps us to stand firm in Christ by teaching us to live in light of Christ. So this morning, God through the Apostle Paul, will be helping us by rooting us in how to stand firm in Christ. So when I say standing firm in Christ, I want you to know I'm I'm talking about persevering. Persevering with faith in the Lord. See, God gives us the means. He provides the way to keep going in our Christian faith. Our standing firm, persevering in Christ. That's the goal of this text. His instructions for us involve living our whole life in light of Christ. So God helps us stand firm in Christ by helping us to live in light of Christ. Teaching us to live in light of Christ. So we're going to see here three basic principles for living in light of Christ. We must live in light of God's, of Christ's gospel humility. We must live in light of Christ's continual nearness. And we must live in light of Christ's exclusive excellence. So let's begin with our first point. God teaches us to live in light of Christ's gospel humility. So in our first three verses this morning, God fleshes out for us what gospel humility looks like. What it it looks like in practice. It looks like loving other Christians. It looks like serving their interests, their pursuits their desires. It also looks like helping other Christians to love one another. So look with me in verse 1 at how, how Paul humbly expresses his love for his brothers, his brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 1, therefore my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, 
my beloved. Can't you just hear Paul's love? His great love for these people? Paul here is communicating the very heart of Christ for his people. This is Christ's heart for you. Christ has come to make you his brother, his sister, his joy, his crown, his beloved whom he loves and longs for. See, before anything else, living in light of Christ's gospel humility means receiving Christ's love poured out for you on the cross. It takes humility to receive someone's love, to allow them to love you and serve you. See, the first step in humility is to to repent of your sin, to to turn from your sin, your self-ruled life, and to trust in Christ's sufficient work for you on the cross, his death on the cross for your sins. And then after this, the, the question of humility becomes, are we imitating Christ? in his love, his devotion for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So when we think of coming to church, are we cultivating thoughts like, I love these people. They're my joy, my crown. I I long to be with these people. Now there's no biblical command, you must go to Grace Covenant Church that's the people that you have to be a part of. It's not, you can look at scripture, it's not going to say, Grace, Covenant Church. However, we should have some group of believers who we think of as our beloved, our joy, our crown, our family. Think about the Apostle Paul. Could you imagine the Apostle Paul living in Philippi and not gathering together with, with the other Philippian believers on the Lord's Day, not, not gathering with them and feasting with them and expressing his love for them, not a chance. Right? Apathy toward the local church, it doesn't display gospel humility. Apathy towards other Christians. It doesn't display Christ valuing others more than himself. Apathy toward other believers, it has no place in God's instructions for standing firm in Christ. How about for those of us who have a local church where we're we're loved and we're being loved, where we're showing devotion, where, where we find them as our joy. What about for us? Well, we can grow in emptying ourselves like Christ by growing in our expressions of love for one another. So think about the way Paul humbly puts himself out there to these Christians. How he he makes himself humble in expressing his love for them, exposing himself to rejection before. He, he's not sitting back kind of guarded, waiting for guarantees that they're going to reciprocate his love, his joy. No, he's living his life in imitation of Christ, humbly emptying himself, expressing his love, exposing himself, whether or not they respond and reciprocate. 
So husbands, fathers, this begins with us in the home and in the church. Like this, this can be hard for us. Right? Sometimes I, I think of hearting a text message. And I'm like, I don't want to lose my man card. You know, I'm not, like, how are they going to feel about this if I heart this t- text message? Right? So I, I don't know if Paul would have hearted a text message or not. But we do know from this text this morning in Philippians that he understood godly masculinity to include expressions of loving affections for the church of Christ. So men, we must lead the way in showing what godly masculinity looks like, expressing our love for others. Why? Because living in light of gospel humility, Christ's gospel humility involves humbly loving others and expressing our love for one another. So now in our text, after his expression of love for them, after he calls them to stand firm in Christ in this way, Paul then calls two ladies in the church out by name, these two ladies who are in conflict with one another, and he calls them to live according to gospel humility. Look at verse 2 with me again. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. In this verse, Paul's pointing back to Philippians 2 to call on Euodia to value Syntyche and her interests as more significant than her own. He's calling on Syntyche to do the same with Euodia. We don't have the exact details about what their conflict is over. Maybe Euodia wants their church small group to move to Thursdays and Syntyche wants it to be on Tuesdays. We have no idea. But textual clues, they do help us conclude that the ladies are two genuine believers. We see that in the next verse. It says that their names are written in the very book of life. We can also see that it's, it's not a major moral or theological disagreement that they're having, right? We see that in that Paul doesn't take sides. It's not like Euodia confronted Syntyche about her cheating on her taxes. Paul's not saying, come on girls, just agree to disagree about whether it's right to steal or not. It also can't be that Syntyche is confronting Euodia in her Judaizing. Paul has no place for, for getting along, just agreeing just to get along when it comes to the nature of the gospel. He's not telling them, just agree. Agree at whatever moral or theological cost. Some people in our culture, that's what it sounds like. You know, just as long as we all just are unified and gather together and can just agree, then we'd all just have peace and harmony. That's not what Paul's saying. He's also saying that Christians are never allowed to voice disagreement. Like, like we're not allowed to have personal preferences and pursuits and cares and concerns. Rather, he's entreating these ladies 
in their differences to have the mind of Christ toward one another, to empty and humble themselves toward each other, to value the other as more highly in her different interests, her different opinion, her different pursuits. We can see this in that Paul, he's pointing back to Philippians chapter 2. We see this in, in that he set, tells them to agree in the Lord. Look, verse 2, I entreat Euodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The word agree here has the meaning of have the same mind in the Lord. Have the same mind. Does that ring any bells from Philippians 2? Let's read, let's look back at Philippians 2, 1 to 5 together. Philippians 2, 1 to 5. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection in sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Then Paul goes on to explain what this mind of Christ looks like. That though Christ was in the form of God, he emptied himself by humbling himself, by taking the form of a servant, a true human nature, and obeying to the point of death, even death on the cross. So here in our passage this morning, Paul appears to be saying to Euodia, to Syntyche, Remember chapter 2? Remember chapter 2? Ladies, apply that in your conflict. Right? Maybe Euodia is interested in, in spurring on the church's evangelism. She's like, I really think we need to focus on evangelism, everyone. And Syntyche is seeking to spur on the church's relational fellowship. We really need to focus on our personal, interpersonal love and, and care for one another. And instead of valuing the other person and their interests, it's become a, a sort of competition. They've taken sides and, and they see it as uh, she's hurting our evangelism by promoting our unity. And she's uh, t- t- costing our evangelism by promoting our unity. Right? Rather than embracing the other person's values as more significant, the person is more significant, and taking interest in her values, they're both being self-focused. This reminds me of what I might call an all-out war that I experienced once when I was uh, teaching third to fifth grade a Sunday school class between a couple of five-year-old girls. One was dead set that the first Beauty and the Beast was better than the sequel to Beauty and the Beast, and the other one was absolutely certain that the sequel to Beauty and the Beast was way better than the first Beauty and the Beast. In case you're wondering, yes, there is a sequel. However, while we might scoff at toddlers, right, who are warring over preferences about being the beast, we have to admit that disagreements that we adults often have, they can boil down at the core 
to the same, the same issue. Did you, did you hear she wants to have Thursday night community group? And she wants it focused on evangelism? We're going to lose half our group. That idea is as bad as the sequel to The Beauty and the Beast. Right? She, she, wants, she likes Thursday night better than Tuesday night. Right? It's, it's a matter of personal value or personal opinion or, or, or some personal fear that we have that another person does not share. See, God gives us a different way to live. We must imitate Christ's gospel humility, his self-emptying. So maybe this morning you can identify with Euodia or Syntyche. Maybe you have trouble loving someone because you disagree with them or when you think of them, your thought of them go, immediately goes to that disagreement you have with them about something. Or maybe it's not a, a key moral, a huge moral issue or a significant theological disagreement, but they just prefer something different than you. They value something or, or have a different pursuit in life than you do. If that is you this morning, then God would say to you, Euodia, meet Syntyche. Empty yourself, value her more than yourself, and look to her interests. So pray. Pray about how can I value this person that I'm thinking of more than myself? How can I take that person's different interest and identify with them as my own interest? Lord, give me grace to empty myself like Christ emptied himself for me. God wants us to live in light of Christ. He wants us to have self-emptying humility, not self-exalting hubris. Self-emptying humility, not self-exalting hubris. See, through self-emptying humility, we will stand firm in Christ. So while Paul calls these women to to humbly agree in verse 2. Then we see his, his call for gospel humility to the church in how they respond to these women in their conflict. So let's look at verse 3 again together. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So in this verse, it appears that Paul is calling the body of believers who who Paul calls his true companion. This body of Christ is his true companion. He calls them to help these Christian women in their conflict to reconcile. So that means that God calls us to humble ourselves like Christ, to help other Christians to humble themselves toward others. Does anyone in your life seem self-consumed to you? Maybe it comes out in their continual expression of their own judgments about themselves, their own opinions about the world. 
How can we empty ourselves by seeking to help them empty themselves in relation to others, in relation to the world? It could be simple uh, like an observation, you know? Just thought, food for thought. I've noticed that you don't ask many people questions about their life, about how they're doing. Just wanted to throw that out there. Sometimes a simple observation like that, the Holy Spirit can use that to awaken them that they're being self-consumed about their self-interest and their self-focus. Our first His Help principle this morning, God teaches us in this passage in order to help us persevere, help us stand firm in Christ, to live in light of Christ's gospel humility. So our second principle this morning, God helps us stand firm in Christ by teaching us in verse 4 through 7 to live in light of Christ's near presence. Christ's near presence. He teaches us very clear in specific ways to live in light of Christ's continual nearness to us. Here's what he says. He says, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. Then he goes on, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And then in the next verse, he's going to talk about in everything, be at peace, not be anxious in anything. So how, this is our question. He gives these absolutes, always rejoice to everyone be be reasonable or or be gentle-minded in everything be at peace how can God demand of us unchanging joy ever-present gentle-mindedness unmoving unshakable peace Because Paul knows, and he wants us to know, that these characteristics do not depend on our circumstances. Our joy does not depend on finding a dream home or any home, as my family is discovering as we continue to look for a house in today's market. Our gentle-mindedness does not depend on our having perfectly obedient children. Our peace of mind does not depend on a spouse's devotion, their absolute uh, service toward us, joy, gentle-mindedness, and peace. They don't depend on the fulfillment of our cares. They depend on the fulfillment of from our Christ. We don't need fulfillment of our cares to receive these things. We need fulfillment from our Christ. Joy, gentle-mindedness, peace. They depend on our heart's condition in relation to Christ. In verse 5, God shows us the principle. He shows us the truth that by faith will empower us to live in these ways. What does he say at the end of verse 5 here? The Lord is at hand. 
The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near to you this morning. His presence, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, is here this morning, right? If you reach out your hand, where your hand lands, you cannot see him. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's right there. His presence is here with you. But I can't see him. True. But your eyes are lying to you. The Lord is at hand. But, but how could he be here to help me and to strengthen me when I'm so sinful? You, you don't know how sinful what I did yesterday, what I did last night. I don't even think about him. How could he be here to strengthen me and to help me? Jesus drew near to you when you were his enemy, dead in your sin, a follower of the prince of the power of the air. He drew near to you by taking on your fallen human nature, humbling himself, bearing your nature all the way to the cross and drinking the wrath that you deserve on the cross. He drew near to you that you might be justified How could he not draw near to you to ensure that you'll be sanctified? He's here with you now. His chosen saint, whom he loves, his beloved. But I thought he was in heaven. He's in heaven, right at the right hand of the Father. How how could he be right here next to you? Yes, he's in heaven. He's there in his bodily still. Yes, but God the Father has given the Son in his human nature all power by the Holy Spirit to subject all things in the world to himself. And that involves his special gift of himself through the Holy Spirit to be with his people in the church. He's walking in and with his people in the church, working to bring about all things for their good and for his glory. The Lord is at hand. Rejoice. The Lord's at hand. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Wherever we go, he's before us. He's behind us. He's above us. He's below us. He's providing and protecting. He's supporting and sustaining. He's guarding us and he's guiding us. We need not be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. But there's a second sense in which the Lord is at hand as well. Not only is Christ's spirit here with us, a nearness in distance, but his bodily presence is near to being with us. It's going to be soon and very soon when we see the king. There is a closeness in his time of arrival. When Christ comes back, it's going to feel like this life with all its suffering, all of its agony, all of its longing and waiting, 
it's going to feel like it was a distant dream, like a distant memory, like a passing mist. A thousand of our days is like a single day in the presence of the Lord. From God's perspective, it's like Jesus returned to heaven two days ago. From God's perspective, it's like one heartbeat before Christ comes back and the trumpet sounds and the heavens roll up like a scroll. Paul declares, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Be gentle-minded to everyone. The Lord is at hand. You're, you're a heartbeat away from making your, meeting your maker. You'll be quicker here than your wildest dreams could imagine. Rejoice, your Savior is but a moment away. He's coming with your sure reward, your eternal inheritance. It's but a heartbeat away. Be gentle-minded to everyone. You're about to meet face-to-face with Almighty God. Without wavering, rejoice, be gentle-minded, be at peace. The Lord is at hand. So then, in verses 6 and 7, God teaches us further how to respond. How to respond to Christ's near presence. And in it, he extends to us a gracious promise, a precious promise. Because Christ is near to us without ceasing, our response should be making requests to him without ceasing. Let's read verses, or verse 6 together again. Do not be anxious about anything But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So in response to Christ's constant presence, his continual nearness, we can take off our anxious thoughts. We can say, no. When an anxious thought comes to our mind, we say, I'm not going to listen to that. We put it off. And we put on our thanks-filled requests. I'm sensing an anxious thought coming up. No. Lord, will you help me with whatever thought was coming to my mind? Lord, will you help me? Put on requests. For, for example, we must put off, I mean, the stock market's getting way too high. It's, it's coming for a crash. I mean, the Fed's p- pumping all this money into the economy. I mean, what if I lose my retirement because, you know, the, the dollar implodes. I lose all my retirement. I, it goes into a recession. I lose my job and I'm not as strong as I used to be. Thoughts like this, wherever you're at in life, they can come. Those those are examples of anxious thoughts that we must put to death. Right? Cut it off. Put it off. I'm not going to listen to that. But maybe those are not the sorts of anxieties that you're tempted with. Maybe you're tempted to be anxious about your body what other people think about your body or or what's happening to your body. That new mark that showed up on your skin about your aging, the the pain, will it ever ever go away in my shoulder? Maybe you're tempted to be anxious when you've sinned and, and you're 
thoughts are, what if somebody finds out? Or, or, or what if they ask me about it? Or it could be anything we're tempted by anxiety. Maybe you're anxious about meeting new people or going into a new setting, a new school year with a new class. In every situation, we must put off anxiety and put on thanks-filled requests to God. Trust that Jesus is literally right beside you and ask him to take care of the situation. Let's read in verse 7 what God what Christ promises us in response when we make these continual requests to him. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what does living in this manner a life of making requests to the Lord. What does that look like? Jesus, thank you for being here with me. Will you bless my family, Lord? Will you provide for my family? Will you bless the U.S. economy and the stock market? Please don't help me not lose my retirement, Lord. Thank you for giving our nation prosperity. Thank you for my job, Lord. Please help me not lose my job. Will you help me to trust you with my finances, with my retirement? Will you give me peace and joy even if we go into a recession, even if I lose my job. Thank you, Lord. Please help me. Will you help me live for your approval and not for the approval of others? Will you remind me of your presence as I'm going to meet this new person and I, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to say? Would you strengthen me, Lord? Give me the words to say. Thank you for your peace. Thank you for guarding my heart in my mind. In these ways, God teaches us to live in light of Christ's continual nearness, his continual presence to us. He wants us to have peace, supernatural peace that guards our hearts. A great promise for Christians who by his help are standing us, standing firm in Christ. Okay, so in our first points, our second points, what have we learned so far? We've learned that living in light of Christ's gospel humility, his continual nearness, these are the things that the Lord's teaching us to stand firm in Christ. Now, in our third point, God helps us stand firm by teaching us to live in light of Christ's exclusive excellence. His exclusive excellence. In all of life, Christ's exclusive excellence should control our thoughts, should control our actions, should control our peace. Look at verse 8, how God helps us by guiding us. He guides us how to, to think in light of Christ's excellence. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think 
about these things. God gives us these guiding principles because he loves us. We need help in knowing what to think about and how to live, and he gives us these principles to guide our thoughts. But how do we know whether our thoughts are true, whether, whether they're honorable, whether they're pure and lovely? Jesus Christ is the standard. Jesus Christ is the standard, and he's here with us. Would Jesus say, yes, that thought that exactly captures what's going on in reality. That thought, it it in no way jumps to a conclusion that isn't supported by the evidence. That thought in no way assumes the worst about anyone. (laughs) That is a wonderful thought. I love that thought. Don't we want Jesus to say... I love that thought that you just had. I commend you for thinking that thought. You know, our Father in heaven, he loves. He loves that thought. In fact, he and I will be delighting in that thought together for the rest of eternity. Would you encourage your brothers and sisters to think that thought as well? Right, friends, this section in Scripture, it might be the most important passage for informing our thoughts in our minds, the things that we think about in life, in controlling them, in particular with regarding to the things we allow into our mind through our media usage. Whether it's cable news, whether it's scrolling Facebook or the movies or TV shows we watch. The things we look at or we listen to, we're going to think about, aren't we? How could you not? So if we're to think about things that are true, that are pure and lovely, then we must watch and hear and read things that Jesus would say, yes, that is true. Yes, that is pure. Yes, I love that. If you watch something and afterwards and Jesus said, was that pure? What do, you, what do you think? Kyle, do you think that was pure? What would you say? Lord, you know. That's what we want to, we want to be able to say. Because he is there with us. It's not just to pretend what if Jesus were there with you. He is there watching whatever we're watching with us, listening to whatever we're listening with us. In this way, Christ's exclusive excellence should not only inform our thoughts, but also inform how we act. And we see this in verse 9. What you have learned, the Apostle Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Isn't that amazing? That the the Apostle Paul can say, you want to know how to imitate Christ? Imitate me. 
You want to know how to live for Christ's excellence? Live like I taught you. The way that I lived, live that way. Beloved church, we want to meditate on the exclusive excellence of Christ because we want our lives to reflect his exclusive excellence. And we want to, to say to others, follow me so that you can live for Christ's exclusive excellence as well. You can radiate his glory and so that the God of peace will be with you as he is with me. So to end our message this morning, let's think about Paul's own example, how he lived in light of Christ's gospel humility, his continual nearness, and his exclusive excellence. In the very last chapter of the very last letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to us, writing in prison in Rome while he is on trial there. He tells us about his first trial with when he's standing there before Caesar, what this was like. Let's read this together. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. They all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. So that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here, church, we have an example of living in light of Christ's gospel humility. Paul's emptying himself that others might hear the gospel. Paul's living in light of Christ's continual presence in his life. His sensing the Lord's standing next to him, strengthening him when he's in the lion's den before Caesar. He's, he, Paul's living in light of Christ's exclusive excellence, thinking on, glorying in God in the darkest of hours. May God likewise help us to stand firm by teaching us to live in light of Christ. Let's pray. And band, you can go ahead and come up. Lord Jesus, thank you for being at hand. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for pouring yourself out on the cross to justify us, to make us right in your eyes, in the eyes of your Father, that we can have eternal hope and peace and joy in believing. Thank you for this church, Lord. Thank you that you redeemed a people for yourself they, they might be devoted to good works, 
to thinking pure thoughts, true thoughts, loving one another, radiating your excellencies, glorifying you in a a dark, a perishing world. May you be glorified in our lives. Help us to stand firm, we pray. Thank you for teaching us this morning and showing us how to live in light of you. We love you and bless you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.